Section 21 of The Outline of Science, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Thomas Coos, John Thomas Coos Kuzmarski. The Outline of Science by J. Arthur Thompson. Applied Science, Part 3, Flying, Part 2. War in the Air. The needs and requirements of military machines and commercial airplanes differ greatly. The military machine, intended for fighting, must be very fast, capable of climbing to great heights at tremendous speeds, and capable of being quickly maneuvered in every possible way. On more than one occasion, the flying qualities of his machine enabled a pilot to save his life during the Great War. Captain H. W. Woolett of Number 43 Squadron achieved the war's record by bringing down six enemy aircraft in one day, very largely owing to the excellent qualities of his machine. Thus, at 10.30 a.m., whilst leading a patrol, he saw a German machine, outmaneuvered it, fired about 30 rounds, and saw it spin down and crash. During this fight he had been attacked by several other machines without delay he climbed rapidly above his attackers and dived on to a two-seater firing as he went causing this machine also to crash once again he outclimbed his opponents looped away from two attacking fockers made a vertical bank and again dived on the tail of an albatross after he had fired about 40 rounds, this machine burst into flames and fell to pieces. He then went home. At 5 p.m. the same evening, he attacked 13 enemy aircraft, having absolute confidence in his own skill as a pilot, and knowing that his machine could outmaneuver any of those he was attacking. He first fired 30 rounds into one of the enemy airplanes, which turned over on its back and fell to pieces. He then climbed again, maneuvered rapidly among the remaining 12 machines, avoiding the fire of his opponents until he could fire a burst into an albatross, which spun down and crashed. He then made for home. On crossing the lines, he saw another enemy machine above him, once more, the climb of his bus enabled him to get over his enemy, and he crashed his sixth machine for the day. This day's work, the record for the war, illustrates the necessity for speed in the air, speed in climb, and maneuverability. Another incident showing the value of maneuverability occurred when Lieutenant McLeod of the RAF won his VC. He was attacked at a height of about 5,000 feet by eight German triplanes, which dived at him from all directions, flying hard. McLeod was flying a two-seater, and by skillful flying, he enabled his observer to fire at each enemy machine in turn, bringing down three of them out of control. McLeod then looped his bus, despite the fact that he had by then been wounded five times and dived at a fourth airplane. Unfortunately, two of the other five survivors got above him, and firing from above, 
hit the petrol tank and set his machine on fire. McLeod, scorched by the flames, climbed out of his seat to the left bottom plane and stood there, leaning over to the cockpit to reach the control lever and causing the plane to side-slip steeply, thus blowing the flames away from him and his observer. Meanwhile, the observer was able to stick to his seat and fire at the enemy, keeping them at bay until the ground was reached. Instances such as these illustrate the value of maneuver more than anything else. The man and the machine. The psychology of the war pilot is an interesting study, and was closely investigated during the war. It was found that the most successful pilots of single-seater scout fighters are of the impulsive, careless type, willing to run any risk without thought of the danger. Men like this attack a dozen enemy machines single-handed at sight, and rage in the air like mad dogs, biting at everything. They, more than any other type, cause the British pilots to be feared on all fronts. The pilot of a two-seater fighter needs to be a little more cautious. He has to think of his observer even if he forgets himself. When the two work well together, they form a wonderful combination. Reconnaissance and artillery pilots are regarded as the brainy members of the force. Their job is to watch signal and draw deductions. Usually, they are protected by scouts, and if called upon, must be able to look after themselves in aerial combat. The remaining type, the bomber pilots, need great powers of endurance and coolness under shell fire. They have to pilot heavy machines for many hours on end and endure heavy shell and machine gun fire without flinching, whilst the observer drops his bombs. As a representative of a two-seater fighting machine, the Bristol fighter undoubtedly stands first among the world's aircraft. This machine carries a pilot and observer and is fitted with a 275-horsepower Rolls-Royce or a 300-horsepower Hispano-Suiza engine. It has a full speed of 124 miles per hour and can climb to 10,000 feet in 21.3 minutes, whilst the ultimate height to which it can attain is about 20,000 feet. Its armament consists of a machine gun firing forward through the propeller and operated by the pilot and a second machine gun operated by the observer, which can be moved about to command the whole of the rear of the machine. The device which enables the pilot to fire his machine gun absolutely between the revolving blades of the air screw is exceedingly ingenious. It is known as the Constantinesco interrupter gear. By means of a communication between the engine of the machine and the gun itself, the gun is timed not to fire on those occasions when the blades of the propeller would be in the path of the bullet. As the propeller revolves at the rate of about 750 revolutions per minute, the ingenuity of this arrangement can well be imagined. For a representative single-seater, the sop with snipe may be taken as an example. This machine was produced shortly before the end of the war, and is fitted with a 200-horsepower Bentley Rotary 2 engine, which gives the machine a full speed of 135 miles per hour. 
It can climb to 10,000 feet in 8.8 minutes, and the armament consists of three machine guns, all firing forward between the blades of the air screw. To protect himself from attack in the rear, the pilot depends entirely upon the flying qualities of his machine. For a typical bomber, one may take the Vickers Vimy. This carries a pilot, gunner, and bomber together with a load of 1,146 pounds of bombs. It also carries four Lewis guns for defense in case of attack, two being placed in the nose of the machine and two in the fuselage, the body of the machine. Though fitted with two 360-horsepower Rolls-Royce engines, it does not travel very fast, only being capable of about 107 miles per hour, whilst it takes 23 minutes to climb to 10,000 feet. It may be of interest to know that the biggest crew for any British airplane during the war was carried by the Handley Page V-1500 type, which was built for bombing Berlin. This machine, 126 feet in span and fitted with four Rolls-Royce engines, carried a pilot and observer, two bombers, and two gunners, six in all, and in addition carried 24 230-pound bombs. The total weight of bombs dropped by British machines on the Western Front alone from July 1916 to November 11, 1918, was 6,402 tons the heaviest bomb weighing about 1,500 pounds. The biggest German bomb weighed 2,200 pounds. During the same period on the Western Front, the RAF brought down 6,904 enemy aircraft and 258 kite balloons. In addition, 401,375 photographs were taken and 10,238,000 182 rounds of machine gun ammunition were fired at German troops on the ground. Turning to airships, we find that Britain now has the largest fleet and biggest vessels in the world. One of these, the L-71, an ex-German Zeppelin, is the biggest in existence. In addition to L-71, we also possess the ex-Zeppelin L-64, whilst the purely British vessels include R-33, R-36, R-80, and the incomplete R-37, a sister ship of the ill-fated R-38. Of all these vessels, only R-36 is at present fitted up for passenger work. She has accommodations for the carriage of 50 passengers in addition to a crew of 27. Sleeping bunks, which can be folded away during the day, are provided for all travelers, whilst the dining room and saloon are fitted up with tables and chairs and are comfortable in every way. A ship of this type could make the journey from England to Australia, stopping at Malta, Egypt, Aden, India, and Singapore on the way, in less than a fortnight. When the service is an accomplished fact, mooring masts will probably be erected at all intermediate stations and sheds only at the termini. It must be remembered that a shed to house an airship between two and three hundred yards long costs over one hundred thousand pounds. In addition, a crew of some hundreds of men is necessary to take one of these aerial monsters to its berth or bring it out to the open. A mooring mast costs less than twenty-five thousand to erect. The 
up-to-date form of mast consists of a lattice-work tower with a top which revolves easily. From the revolving top a cable can be let out and, when an airship approaches, a second cable is let down from the nose of the vessel. The two cables are then connected and a steam winch hauls in the slack, gradually drawing the airship closer until her nose fits into a socket in the revolving head of the mast. So fixed, she will always swing with her nose upwind, and can safely outride winds of 40 to 50 miles per hour velocity. The additional advantage which mooring has as against berthing in a shed is that it's then half a dozen men are needed to moor an airship, and the act of release is even simpler. Passengers and goods are carried to the top of the mast in a lift, so that no inconvenience is experienced by travelers. The actual dimensions of the airships which we have in Britain are as follows. Airship R-33, length 639 feet, 5 inches, cubic capacity 1,000, 958 cubic feet engines 5 350 horsepower sunbeams gross lift 59.4 tons range of action 5000 miles speed 63.5 miles per hour airship r 36 and 37 length 672 feet 2 inches cubic capacity 2000 101 cubic feet engines two 260 horsepower maybox and three 350 horsepower sunbeams cossack gross lift 63.8 tons range of action 4000 miles speed 65 miles per hour airship r80 length 530 feet cubic capacity 1,250 cubic feet. Engines, four 260 horsepower Maybox. Gross lift, 38.5 tons. Range of action, 6,500 miles. Speed, 65 miles per hour. Airship L-71. Length, 743 feet. Cubic capacity, 2,420 cubic feet. Engines, 6, 260 horsepower, Maybox. Gross lift, 78 tons. Range of action, 6,000 miles. Speed, 75 miles per hour. The future of airships. With regard to the future of airships, it is safe to say that they will be utilized for mail, passenger, and goods services for the long-distance routes, whereas airplanes will be employed. On routes, up to about 1,000 miles in length, which routes will be covered in stages of about 250 miles each. Airships will make flights such as that from England to Australia in stages of at least 1,000 miles at a time. Similarly, we shall probably organize an airship service to South Africa and another across the Atlantic to Canada, whilst possibly the Canadian route may be continued across the Pacific to Australia, thus giving us a British airship service encircling the globe. Perhaps the most famous airship flight in the world was the trip of R-34 across the Atlantic and back. The outward journey 
of about three thousand miles was made in one hundred and eight hours twelve minutes a crew of eight officers and twenty-two men being carried major scott being in command there was plenty of excitement on the outward journey particularly when the ship got into a thunderstorm off newfoundland the return journey was made in better time only seventy-five hours three minutes being taken over the trip how an airship is built the structure of airships necessarily varies considerably as there are three main types non-rigid semi-rigid and rigid the first consisting of an envelope to which is attached a car the second having the envelope strengthened with girders and the third consisting of a girder framework inside which are several gas bags the whole being attached to a rigid keel which carries the cabins and engine gondolas the rigid type is the most important and is capable of the greatest development to this class belong the zeppelins and the british r types which are copies of zeppelins the r thirty three type has a streamline hull built up of duralumin girders her overall length being six hundred and thirty nine feet and her diameter seventy nine feet the hull is fitted with an internal triangular keel which forms the main corridor of the ship it contains water ballast and petrol tanks bomb stowage quarters for the crew etc inside the hull are nineteen gas bags which are charged with approximately two million cubic feet of hydrogen at the forward end of the keel is slung a gondola which forms the control cabin and carries the forward engine amidships are slung two small wing gondolas each carrying an engine and near the rear is a larger car containing two engines and an auxiliary control system the rudders and elevators are aft of this rear car at the tail end of the hull the safety of flying it is quite a mistaken notion that flying is unsafe and unreliable during the twelve months october nineteen twenty to september nineteen twenty one forty one thousand nine hundred fifty six passengers were carried in civil aircraft in great britain the mileage covered was approximately five hundred fifty three thousand seven hundred miles whilst the number of hours spent in the air by the machines was six thousand seven hundred and seventy six for this period of flying the number of passengers killed was four and the number of passengers injured was two during the six months april to september nineteen twenty one half the period under review one passenger was killed and one injured out of thirty one thousand eight hundred fifty three carried and neither of these accidents happened on the regular airways but simply during joy riding exhibitions the casualty rate therefore worked out at point o three passengers killed and point o three passengers injured per thousand carried whilst thirty two thousand two hundred miles were covered for each accident and four hundred fifteen hours flown for each accident these figures do not make civil flying seem unduly dangerous particularly if a comparison is made with accidents of other methods of transport street accidents for nineteen twenty in britain totaled fifty seven thousand seven hundred and forty seven of which two thousand eight hundred and thirty seven were fatal rail accidents in nineteen nineteen totaled twenty four thousand nine hundred fifteen of which nine hundred thirty two were fatal these figures will probably surprise many railway users 
With regard to reliability, the figures are quite convincing, especially when it is remembered that flying is at present in its infancy and may naturally be expected to grow increasingly efficient as the time goes on. Up to the end of September 1921, the figures for the British air transport services between London and Paris, which were completed without delay, were as follows. January, 62.5%. February, 76%. March, 95.4%. April, 94.8%. May, 94.7%. June, 91%. July, 93.8%. August, 94.8%. And September, 93%. These figures do not appear too bad, particularly when it is borne in mind that on several occasions when the weather was too rough for the cross-channel steamers to make the trip, aircraft flew safely between the two capitals. The future. Aircraft fifty years hence will probably be very different machines from those employed at the present day. Possibly helicopters, machines which can rise and land vertically, hover and attach horizontal flight, will have been sufficiently developed to make it possible to bring air traffic into the hearts of cities, landing on roofs or in other confined areas. The present idea of a helicopter is to have a body for the carriage of pilot and passengers attached to two or more air screws revolving horizontally in opposite directions so that the machine may arise and descend vertically. This, however, is of little use in itself, and it must be so perfected that in addition to vertical flight, horizontal flight, both forwards and sideways, can be achieved. Many problems confront the designer, but these will be overcome in course of time. Height indicators, showing the pilot the actual height above ground at all times, will minimize the danger of flying in fog. Whilst automatic landing apparatus and air brakes will still further ensure the safety of the airways. Engines of greater horsepower and different types, perhaps developments of the steam turbine or possibly electric motors to which power is transmitted by wireless from ground stations, will come into use. Silent air screws, noiseless engines, and reduction of vibration will add to the comfort of passengers. Self-starters will minimize the work of starting up. Speed will develop enormously until the ordinary passenger-going machines will fly at hundreds of miles an hour. Landing lights will be so perfected and machines will be so reliable that night flying will be as simple as aviation by day. Parachute or other safety devices will ensure the safety of passengers at all times. All these will come in course of time. At the present, we must go forward steadily with the work of discovery, realizing that the science of flying is still in its infancy, and knowing without a shadow of doubt that future developments will make our present achievements seem small to the coming generation. End of section 21. Recording by John Thomas Kuz, John Thomas Kuz Kuzmarski, www.validateyourlife.com. End of the Outline of Science, Volume 3, by J. Arthur Thompson.